0: This is the East
1: TraumaCast. Trauma cast.
2: With your moderators,
1: Kevin Pay from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah,
2: Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center.
3: This program brought to you by
2: the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships,
1: and Building Careers.
4: So uh, the DOD disclosure, uh, uh, Matt and I have nothing to disclose, nor do the panel members. And also, these are actual cases, but not every photo. Many of the photos are the actual patients, but some of the photos, just given uh, the challenges with getting photos in these environments, are from different patients.
2: So uh, I don't think any of these people really need an introduction, except maybe uh, Matt Eckert. Uh, Dr. Matt Eckert is a new member of WTA, uh, inducted last night. He's a Trauma Surgeon at Madigan Army Medical Center. Uh, He's also a surgeon with the uh, Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, And then we have Dr. Carlos Brown from Austin, Texas, Dr. Deb Stein from Shock Trauma in Baltimore, and Dr. Jim Davis on his second panel of the meeting uh, from UCSF Fresno. Uh, and, and again, the purpose of these case record sessions are so we, uh, so these lessons that we learn that we often tend to forget between wars, that we stop forgetting them. Next slide.
4: Okay, so like I already mentioned, these are actual cases from the wars over the last 14 years. So uh, as we go through our panel discussion, please have respect for the patients and the management of the care under limited resources.
2: So our rules of engagement. Uh, we're not going to share any tactical, strategic, or operational information. We do encourage. It's Western trauma. We want audience participation. We don't want it to come to fisticuffs, though. Um, and caveat emptor, because we're doing a little something differently. So you can get up and challenge any of these people, but midway through this session, each of these panelists is going to pick their replacement for the second half from the so audience. close the
4: doors in the back.
2: <laughs> so so you will now know what it's like to have a draft reinstituted. <laughs> these are complex cases, and so hopefully they'll generate some enthusiastic discussion. And, and I'll st- say right off from the start, the care in all these cases is not perfect, and this is the reality, I think, of, of battlefield trauma care. So, so this is just a quick video clip. This is your scenario. You're you're in the desert somewhere. This is a relatively forward, austere environment. It's dirty. It's hot. Uh, patients, you know, tend to arrive. They tend to arrive in multiples. As we go to the next video clip, and then advance again to start it. And so, we often tend to get mass casualties, as opposed. To it's relatively less frequent in civilian trauma. This is kind of a day to day marty you might recognize this this is uh to create iraq this is a standard combat support hospital next slide
4: okay so our first case is uh, afghanistan november 2011 um so you are at a combat support hospital with ancillary services and surgical specialties. You have a blood bank as well as the capability for a walking blood bank. Situation is a foot patrol with a dismounted IED. There are multiple casualties being brought to your combat support support hospital. Uh, there are two urgent surgical and four priority. So, like I said, dismounted IED blast. This patient uh, had multiple injuries. We're going to focus on his bilateral. Uh, lower extremity amputations where the bleeding was controlled with bilateral tourniquets. Uh, he was noted to be mostly unresponsive in the field. They performed a crike. In the field, his heart rate was 130, respiratory rate of 25. He did arrest on the helicopter, and CPR was initiated. He arrives at the Combat Support Hospital. He's got one PIV in place. CPR is in progress. On uh, vital signs are uh, absence, but he does have a rhythm uh, on the monitor. He's pulseless, GCS of three. CPR is ongoing.
2: Okay, so why don't we start the discussion there, and we'll, we'll start on the end. Uh, Matt, so this, this guy, blast injury has arrived. He's had CPR in
0: progress. He does have organized electrical activity on the monitor. First thing you're going to do is we'll run through these. You're going to control for exsanguinating hemorrhage right away. Make sure your tourniquets are, on, are working and, in fact, in place, although when he's that hypotensive, unlikely any bleeding is going to be happening. And then uh, with CPR in progress with no uh, circulation, I'd move to resuscitative thoracotomy. Okay, how about you, Carlos? Yeah, I do a resuscitate thoracotomy
5: at the same time, intubate, right chest tube, and get IV access. Okay, anybody
2: do anything differently?
6: Yeah, my general practice is, is I almost always, I'm going to do a clamshell thoracotomy on this. Speaking of the mic. Sorry, opinion. I'm going to do a clamshell thoracotomy on this patient, um, and that way you evaluate both chests at the same time and you have access to his heart. You could talk about doing a rubella on this patient. Um, in the absence of being able to rule out a, thor- a thoracis, major thoracic injury, I would not favor that.
7: I think he's going to get a thoracotomy.
2: Uh, I think if you had Raboa, you might do it, but I think his prognosis is poor. Okay. So, would anybody here consider just starting blood, continuing CPR, and, and seeing if he resuscitates? Okay. Everyone's for the thoracotomy. Uh, I think the Raboa question is interesting. This was before Reboa was even a reality. This is a quick video clip. You'll notice our own Chuck Fox there in action. This is a, a, a thoracotomy at a, a forward, this is not the actual patient but this is just what the scenario might look like. And so thoracotomy is done, and now trying to figure out what to do next.
4: So this patient did have blood resuscitation and resuscitative thoracotomy. Uh, he arrived at 1631. His uh, uh, thoracotomy was eight minutes later. Aortic cross-clamp, they did get uh, blood pressure and heart rate back with uh, that and epi and five units of blood and FFP. Heart rate's 130, systolic blood pressure with the cross-clamp on is 130.
2: Okay, so where do we go to next? Carlos, so so he's gotten back, he has a thoracotomy, he's got the amputations. We have little other information at this point about any other injuries. Uh, I would take him to the
5: operating room, um, address his extremities, do a laparotomy, and then
0: uh, see what else I find in there. Okay, Matt. Um- you need to know what kind of space. You said you got multiple casualties, so you have one Speaking table. Speaking the two, mic, Matt. You have one table, two tables, what kind of uh, space and resources you have. You don't occupy your table alone with this guy if you got more people to go to the OR. Um, I'd get your imaging there and then make sure you can get the clamp off uh, and actually stabilize the pressure to get him to the OR. Okay. Would
2: anybody try and image this guy? There's also a question. They were, they were concerned about a possible head injury, GCS of six at this point.
6: I think some imaging to evaluate whether he's bleeding into his abdomen or not and wh- whether you want to focus your attention elsewhere. So, a chest x ray and an ultrasound to at least evaluate if you haven't opened both sides of his chest to at least evaluate.
2: Exam. A what?
4: Exam. <laughs> What's that? What's that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so what, would, what would your physical exam change?
0: You want to sheet these patients just prophylactically, given the the literature that shows that most of these, up to thirty forty percent, have a complex pelvic fracture if they have lower extremity extremi- uh, traumatic amputation. So at this
2: point, he has he has bilateral tourniquets on. There's no active external bleeding you can see. <coughs> would anybody?
4: They're, yeah, they're not involved in this case.
2: Yeah, they're not involved. So would anybody would anybody get a head CT no. before taking him?
7: This guy's got a cr-
2: this guy's got a cross clamp
7: on his aorta. Somebody with a cross clamp on the aorta does not belong in the CT scanner.
3: Dr. Shackford? Yeah, I'm still living that one down. I, I, <laughs> I took a, a guy who was not this badly injured, but a guy who was hit by a car while he was changing his tire or something. But he was massive. But I, my, my question was, uh, yeah, don't take the cl- cross clamp off to you in the aorta. But did he get TXA? Because this guy seems like he's just a perfect guy for... Uh, or uh, this guy, order,
4: pre-hospital, was transported by a vehicle of opportunity, so he did not get a medevac, so he didn't get TXA pre-hospital. He did once he got to the uh, roll three.
2: How many people would give this guy TXA immediately, along with blood? Okay, reasonable. Uh, what about the role of Reboa? Someone mentioned Reboa. Uh, would, would anybody have done a Reboa, assuming it was available? This guy came in today on arrival.
3: You find the femoral artery in that mess, number one. Number two, we're actually always... Actually, his
2: groins are okay. Everything is
3: oh, okay. In, in below patient, the groin In this patient, his groin groins
4: are okay. You'll see a picture in just a second. But why? But it's it's right like right. Kevin
3: Bacon. We're always three degrees away from a boa.
6: <laughs> 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 I, I mean, I'll say this, uh, recognizing this is going to be a little controversial, but if I can rule out his chest as a source of hemorrhage, I think a boa, as part of his resuscitation with CPR blood products, is a less... The chance that this guy is going to survive with a resuscitative thoracotomy and an aortic cross clamp is as low as it gets. So there's the possibility that Roboa offers improving perfusion to his head in, and, and heart without compromising him further with a huge additional trauma of a thoracotomy.
4: It's possible. I'm not saying it's proven. So, fast, as well as it is fast is available. You can. There's this is a combat sport hospital, so you pretty much have everything available that you would have in the States.
8: We're looking for a lot of blood. So if you rule out a lot of blood
9: in the belly, then essentially you have to slowly take the clamp off and probably all the bleeding was from his
4: Well
5: Yeah, I don't I don't I think a fast, I think a fast is gonna is gonna uh, hurt you here because he could have a huge retroperitoneal process. Pelvic fracture, fra- you know, other fragments. And to me, if the fastest positive is going to the OR, if the fastest negative is going to the OR, I don't think it's going to change my management at all.
2: Matt, uh, what do you think? Rabot and this guy today at an FST
0: or cash? Um, the collective experience currently would not support that, uh, I think, to rely on people to be able to do that effectively and fast. So maybe as uh, more experience gets out there with it, I think it's a useful certainly a useful tool, especially if you take the chest off the table, and it's okay. to. Okay. That, that being said, there is going
2: to be a series of four patients coming out in Journal of Special Operations Medicine from far forward, Reboa, but all of those patients arrived with pulses, not pulseless. Peter?
10: Um, <clears throat> the difference also in these people is that they have body armor. So these people who get bilateral lower extremity amputations very frequently need abdominal surgery and laparotomies, but they rarely have thoracic injuries that bleed to death. So on these people, like someone had mentioned, if there's no external bleeding, not doing a thoracotomy is an option because although the algorithms say that you should do a thoracotomy, they get a lot of blood loss from that and they don't survive very frequently. So on some of these people, you might want to just give them as much whole blood as you can, and then <clears throat> eventually they need to go straight to the abdomen, and you and the CT scan really helps you in this situation.
2: Okay, Joe? so show. Oh, sorry, Joe. What's do you have a pelvis
1: X-ray
11: just to? Because we're dealing with those below, right? Uh, one below knee, one above knee. What's How wide is his pelvis? Because that will dictate whether you have to pack his pelvis um, and move on to other things. And then that will dictate what you find with FAST plus that will tell you if you're making a midline or bilateral.
4: Well, in it. this case, we don't have a pelvis x-ray because with his cross clamp on, he went to the CAT scanner. No. So uh, CT scan... Pet... I did
2: not. They did. <laughs> <laughs> As we said, the care, the care will not always be perfect.
4: And, and in this situation, they were getting one additional urgent surgical and five other patients. So they might have also been triaging the, uh, the different OR rooms. So we went to the CAT scan. He didn't have any head, neck, abdomen, or pelvis injuries. He did not uh, have a pelvic fracture. His heart rate was 130s. Uh, blood pressure with the cross clamp on, 120s to 130s. So now what? So
2: this- real quickly, before we get to that, I just want to go down the line and say in the emergency department, you know, this guy arrived pulseless, and let's say you, you cracked his chest and got him back. He's got a cross clamp on. What other imaging would you do before taking him to the OR in terms of x-rays, fast, or, or would you just go to the OR without anything? Joe brought a pelvis x-ray. So what would you do because all that takes
0: time? Yeah, I think if you have chest alignment. and pelvis readily available and fast, I would do them or just do an e-fast and then go to the OR. So chest x-ray, pelvis x-ray, fast. Carlos? A chest
5: x-ray I don't think is helpful. You have the chest open. Um, and, you, and I would have put a right chest tube in so I know if there's blood or pneumothorax in there. I think a pelvis x-ray would be helpful as far as management of a pelvic fracture. That's it. Deb?
6: Uh, I agree. I mean, I think a chest x-ray, if you haven't opened both sides of his chest, potentially helpful to look at his mediastinum, uh, which you haven't really evaluated. Um, but I do think that a pelvic exam... Um, not a pelvic exam, but a pelvic <laughs> exam it's um, <laughs> <is> potentially <laughs> helpful in this patient. Yeah. It's <laughs> <clears throat> potentially helpful because if, if he's grossly unstable, you should be able to feel that. But getting, if getting a pelvic x-ray, if you can do it quickly, I think is helpful because I agree packing his pelvis would be potentially very helpful if he's.
7: Okay, Jim. So I'm going to say chest and pelvis. Uh, there are very few in my career that I can think of pelvises that were so unstable that I could actually feel it. And no offense, I'm guessing my arms are a little bigger than yours. But but the reality is for a pelvis to be so unstable that you can make that diagnosis on physical exam is pretty uncommon, and, and I wouldn't hang my hat or anything else on that. Gary? Yeah, I just wanted to make one point of clarification. One one thing that a,
5: a lot of people notice is that host nationals, they don't wear body armor because they don't have it, and, and universally Americans and um, coalition forces always did, so it was very rare to find an abdominal injury in someone wearing body armor overall. So we used to use the CAT scanner. We called it the soothsayer because you can't tell anything about what's going on inside when they have 300 holes on the outside. And so we would take all those people to the CAT scanner. Not necessarily the same uh, for Americans. And I can't think of an example where someone with a cross clamp on their aorta went to the CAT scanner, but I suppose that... Well, going through do the DoDTR,
4: there's at least three patients that we have with cross clamps, either on the pulmonary hilum or aorta. Yeah, that I saw the
5: picture of the one with the pulmonary. The hilum. scanner,
4: yeah. yeah. So uh, they've done it, and and I think that the part of it is the you know operational considerations, and, and all in these these setups, it is so close. The CAT scanner is essentially right where your trauma bay is, where your OR bay is. Okay, so this is uh, this is the patient. The patients already. Yep. Uh oh. Yep. Yeah. Sir. Hi,
12: Nelson Rosen. Hunter um, Rosen. New Hyde Park. Future General Rosen. Most of you don't know me in this group, but I, I've been in the Army for 23 years, and I've served as a triage officer at Roll 3 facilities and commanded a forward surgical team for six years. And just to echo what you guys said about when you have somebody that has this extent of injury and the number of people that you've talked about coming in, you probably have two active tables. It is unlikely that this is going to be the person that could really benefit the most from the resources that you have. So this patient's probably waiting until two more survivable patients are finishing on your tables. And if you're waiting and the CAT scan is right there, they're going to go to the CAT scanner rather than just sit around for 15 minutes. And they're going to get a a PAN scan. They're going to get completely scanned. So that was the protocol we had. Uh, at the at the 47th cash into crit. And I think that's a very common thing for you to see in Roll 3s all around theater. Thanks, sir. That's a great point. So, so uh, Gary brought up a great point
2: about body armor, and it's a big difference between the ones that wear it and don't. And most of what we take care of is not U.S. soldiers, fortunately. They're pretty good at preventing themselves from getting injured as host nationals who necessarily might not have body armor. So real quick from the audience, today, let's say this patient arrives today, who would do a reboa when this patient arrives cPR in progress peter stacy okay, so we, okay we 've got a couple all right, and then uh, this guy this guy is what we would classify as dismounted complex blast injury, uh, which we know is multiple amputations, perineal injuries, they often have pelvic fractures they they do frequently have intraabdominal injuries.
5: Yeah, that's what I comment
2: on, Matt, is the body armor is, you know, we
5: talk about it, it protects the torso, but this is from below, right? So we saw a lot of a lot of casualties who would have the, the fragments come from below and have plenty of abdominal injuries with body armor intact.
4: So what about the operative approach? Uh, somebody just in general who's been in cardiac arrest, who's already had their, their chest open, uh, who's been significantly unstable? What are the tricks?
2: All right, Deb? So
6: now, now you're in the aura with this guy, and that, that's, uh, that's actually his picture, right? Yes. Well, I think your first priority is getting the aortic cross-clamp off, um, <clears throat> doing that slowly uh, in preparation for what is sure to be some significant reperfusion injury. Uh, how long was this cross-clamp
4: on for? So this patient was about 30, uh, 39 minutes, just, uh, yeah, 40 minutes, yeah.
2: And, and actually, I'll add to their, the, to their credit, when you look at the times,
6: even with the CAT scan, this guy got to the operating room pretty quickly um, when you look at the times, but, but I think that's your first priority is getting that cross clamp off. And then obviously evaluating his lower extremities. It's kind of nice. Now you have the information that you don't need to be in his belly and you don't need to be in his pelvis, but, um, but I think getting that cross clamp off is first priority.
0: Okay. Matt. Yeah. Same thing. You just need to make sure that you have good communication with the likely the CRNA at the head of the bed, not an anesthesiologist, not someone who has extensive trauma experience that they have bicarb, epi, everything ready for when that clamp comes off and just take it off slow and be ready for the, the sequela. Okay, Jim, what would you do in the R ER with this guy? I would tank
7: him up. You've got a negative CT scan of his abdomen, which is likely real. The question is whether or not he's got ongoing bleeding from his chest because there are ED thoracotomies that bleed like hell because you rip off the, the spinal um, blood supply. In getting the cross clamp on. So, is he bleeding in his chest? If so, that's got to be controlled. Uh, I suspect you have to debris, wash out, get vascular control in the lower extremities, and try and get the cross clamp off. It's kind of a time limited event. When I was a trauma fellow, uh, Dr. Hoyt, Dr. Shackford used to say, <laughs> You have about 20, 30 minutes to be able to maintain a blood pressure without the cross clamp. And if you can't get him resuscitated and get that cross clamp off and get a systolic 90 or better in that period of time, the longer it stays on, the less likely you are to be successful. So I suspect that if you can't get him tanked up, get the bleeding stopped, uh, this is likely to be a long run for a short slide.
4: Well, I just want to say that's, that's spot on what happened with this patient. They really struggled with him in the operating room. He arrested a couple times. They initiated a massive transfusion with whole blood and kept transfusing and trying to get him stable. They were in the OR for almost three hours, but I think it was mostly uh, stabilizing him. I don't, didn't, couldn't get that from the records. I couldn't tell, but he arrested. I, he, was, he never really got uh, hemodynamic stability the entire time he was in there.
2: So so Dr. Rosen also brought up a good point about the number of patients you have might dictate what you do. So so now I'm gonna go down the panel. So this guy arrived with five other severely injured patients and you have two general surgeons. Would that change
0: how you would have managed him initially? We'll start with Matt. Yeah, I would keep him if you had another patient who was more likely to survive the injury pattern, needed to go to the OR first. I would start with them, keep this patient in the ER, resuscitating them, the stuff that you're catching up with early on anyway, and then come back. So the question is, you've got a mass how Would you do an ED thoracotomy to resuscitate this patient? Yes, because I don't rely on anybody's. uh, I can't feel a pulse. There was no pressure in the field. You don't know what the timing of those things are. So I think you do everything you can as a Hail Mary up front and then step back when it looks like it's not going to progress. Okay, Carlos? It depends what the other patient, other casualties look like, but if
5: if uh, I'd either not do a thoracotomy or do it, and if they're asystolic and no obvious tamponade to release, I'd probably I'd probably stop and move on to other patients. Deb,
6: yeah, I mean I admire the hell out of you guys. I'm not a military surgeon, and I fortunately have not had to make a decision like that that I can think of. Um, but I think you got to use your resources, and you have to use your resources with respect to who's salvageable and who's not, and the determination of this guy's salvageability. I think we all recognize is, is very low.
7: So if I've got five and this guy's
2: got no blood pressure, I'm probably not doing the thoracotomy. Okay, yeah. And a general policy is that there's no thoracotomies in mass cows, especially for patients that arrive pulseless. But as Matt said, you, you gauge that by how many surgeons you have versus how many yeah.
4: patients. That's a super hard decision. Stacey. Stace.
6: Stacey joint trauma system. Um, I was surprised initially that none of you guys at all uh, considered just resuscitating the patient without an ED thoracotomy, given that he's a, you know, dismounted blast injury. I don't know that the, you know, mechanism really suggests a strong, you know, high incidence of chest injury. So I just wondered what you guys thought about that.
2: Well, you just set yourself up as a target for the next panel. <laughs> <laughs> so.
7: I she, will, she, she can't do be the next
4: panel. She had the case, so <laughs> some ignorance.
7: Some ignorance because I don't see a lot of dismounted blast in Fresno, California. Uh, so somebody who comes in in traumatic arrest uh, with an organized rhythm is frequently going to get an ED thoracotomy. I would not consider him to do it because of the possible chest trauma, but just as a, a Key to resuscitation, I agree, he needs massive transfusion. But the better question is, is this a guy that gets an ED thoracotomy at all or or becomes expectant?
2: And, I don't know, roll three hospitals. So how many people in the audience would first try resuscitate and continue CPR? And how many would do an ED thoracotomy? Okay, so about a 50-50 split. Peter? Marty,
4: you kept your hands up for both. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
10: I, when I was in uh, Landstuhl and got a lot of these people from theater there, uh, just to say that what the Brits did with these people was they would do a laparotomy, not a thoracotomy, and they would go straight to the iliac vessels, and they always controlled them. And they had a pretty, that's the first thing they did.
2: Actually, that's the other thing that we don't know about Roboa, too, in th- these patients are you have devastating lower extremity injuries almost always, and what is the – additional ischemic reperfusion injury? Are you converting them you know, to next level amputation? We just don't know that with ROA in the combat.
13: KJ? Well, I was hoping the, you and the audience could educate me. Uh, in your particular setting and in the broader civilian setting, what is the role for EFAST in that setting? You may have a rhythm, but if you've got no cardiac contractility, is there a role, and have you guys used it in the field to say, okay, this is going to be a long haul and we're not going to get there?
2: Panel? EFAST?
13: Yeah, I would do it, especially when you're talking about
0: your resources here, which are very limited. You follow Kenji's study. I think the data there to support that. And I would do it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a reasonable tool to add. Like I said, you know, Kenji
5: said if you if you were asystolic and didn't have tamponade, you're not going to survive the thoracotomy. So, I think it'd be a
14: reasonable um, triage tool, especially if you have multiple casualties.
7: Great point, KJ.
14: Mm. Marty. So, I think that the really critical element on this case is really where the amputations end, where the, where the wounds end. I really couldn't tell from the pictures, but if the wounds, if it appears that the wounds are ending below the tourniquets and your tourniquets are applying adequate control and there's no perineal or scrotal injuries, then probably you've got adequate control with your tourniquets. And you don't need to think about ROBOA, you don't need to think about ER thoracotomy. So, you're doing an ER thoracotomy in an exsanguinated patient. Who's not? Who has essentially no blood flow? That, that that really doesn't do any. That has no benefit. So if the tourniquets are adequately controlling the injuries, and when this guy, and you can tell that by when this guy's uh, blood pressure returns, he's got a pulse. Does he bleed? If he's not bleeding, his tourniquets are controlling the injuries. You don't need to do rebo. You don't need to do arthrocutomies. You don't need to worry about the belly. His problems are in his legs. Now the the things that fool people is that these th- these injuries that occur, the shrapnel will go above the visible injury, and you have, to, you have to debride well above the area of the obvious wounds. But if, you, if bleeding is controlled, why do a rubella? You, don't, you already have proximal control. Don't mess with that stuff. So the right thing to do, in my mind, is you get a chest X-ray and a pelvis. The perineum's uninvolved. The pelvis is not – there's no pelvic fracture. You have control with your tourniquets. You're done. Everything is in the legs, and you need to deal with the legs.
15: Agreed. Chuck? I just wanted to get my opinion on anti uh which was um, – First of all, with a pelvic injury like that, it might be very hard to get the catheter up. And secondly, in 2011, the prior time catheter didn't even exist. So that means you have to put a wire in. And wiring through a pelvis injury like that is going to be very difficult and possibly injurious. Um, The other thing we should emphasize is really just put in a um, a femoral art line. You know, that gives you access for a bow if you choose to do it. But we haven't really emphasized that enough, I think. You know, just there's plenty of room in that patient to just put a five French uh, sheath in the femoral artery. And I think that's probably more important to get the patient to the operating room quickly and have a monitoring line.
7: Tourniquet's lower.
15: Well, the tourniquet was lower than
2: the femoral artery.
7: Yeah, and in this so. case,
2: they were, they were, the groin was exposed.
7: And honestly, so these are
4: the pneumatic ones, you know, once he gets in the or The ones when he came in, the cat tourniquets were a little <laughs> bit lower than this and then uh, then transitioned over to... These, so you probably did have access to the groin at that point, sir. The, the
15: the the likely scenario is those tourniquets were applied after the patient exsanguinated. So once you resuscitate that patient, they'll start bleeding through those tourniquets anyway. They're probably not even that effective.
2: Yeah. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna close out this case. So real quickly. So this guy's stabilized in the OR. He's got a thoracotomy. How would you guys handle the thoracotomy incision? You know, this is damage control. You're getting him out of the OR. I'll start with Matt. You close it formally. Vac it, skin only. Chest tube. <clears throat> I would, given his overall physiology, I would just temporarily vac it and come back. So you do is vac at the skin level. Yeah. Okay, Carlos. Same.
10: Deb.
6: Yeah, same thing. But I want to. Um, two things is always put the chest tubes in posteriorly because your vac or whatever you're doing anteriorly won't decompress whatever blood collects posteriorly. And the other thing is I blast the crap out of the chest wall with like an argon beam because the chest wall will just bleed and bleed and bleed if you don't address it.
0: There's no argon beam in Iraq.
4: <laughs> yeah. We're getting those. What next do one. I have? Jim. So.
0: Posterior chest tube. Uh,
7: I'd probably whip the skin shut, skin and muscle shut, not do a formal closure. I probably wouldn't vac it, but I will
2: defer to people
7: that have been in that experience and done it.
2: Okay. So he he did stabilize, continue resuscitation. He responded to a one to one and fresh whole blood. Um, why don't we skip this and close okay. out the case? Okay. All
4: right. So. Um... So this uh, patient, uh, this is his post-injury day 16 films. And what you can see even from his uh, original thing, we continue to have injury progression and myonecrosis as well as infection. Uh, When he got to roll five care, Walter Reed, this is uh, how his amputations progressed. Uh, He also... uh, really struggled with heterotopic ossification. HO is something that we see much more frequently in our uh, combat casualties. There's a ton of research going on about it now. They thought There's some thoughts about negative pressure wound therapy might contribute to it. But this is uh, his CT scan. Uh, In terms of long-term follow-up, he had multiple additional operations, as you might imagine, extensive rehab. Uh, He works with the Military Amputee Advanced Training Center. He did pursue a graduate educational degree. And uh, with his permission, we uh, got this uh, picture of him. And this is his quote. So thank you to the. Thanks, panel members. Good job.
2: All right. We're going to run through a quick rapid fire round, and I'm just going to give you a scenario. There's no discussion. There's no questions. I want to know what you would do. Okay, so three-year-old female is brought to your split FST. She's been chronic pneumonia symptoms for a year, getting more short of breath. She now cannot lie flat. That's a chest x-ray done at an Afghanistan hospital, but her father couldn't afford to pay anymore, so they told him to send her home and make her comfort care. This is the ultrasound I did at the bedside, and that's all we have is ultrasound at this split FST. So, Matt, what are you going to do with this little girl? and if you can't read that that's a massive pericardial
0: fusion <laughs> yeah. with tamponade yeah um you're so, in a tent so um yeah and that's you know you can you can take care of these things in a tent so you want to control the airway but in a planned organized fashion so that they don't crash an in induction so you want to organize that up so front so you're going to innovate yeah and then i would do a window and drain that and leave a drain so you do a the
2: xiphoid window to get to there. Start, Okay yeah. Carlos uh same Deb
6: not really knowing enough about the resources of anesthetic management of a three-year-old that you have available to you, but is it possible you could do a percutaneous just drain without an you intubator? It is you don't have you don't
2: have any formal perk drain kits. You do have central line kits, but
6: you could do yeah. I mean, you could easily just put a central line in this, assuming that it's free-flowing fluid, uh, without having an intubator.
7: So the last three perk drainages of a uh, pericardial effusion I've seen have gotten into the RV. So I'm <laughs> fairly. Allergic to that concept right now. Do a some space there, right if, if you can't hit <laughs> this <laughs> effusion, <laughs> <I hear you. laughs> I'd still do a subzygoid window. I know how to do that.
6: Okay.
2: So just just to tell you, we actually did perk drain it with a Cordis kit for two weeks. Pulled the drain. She did great. Came back two weeks later. Same effusion and tamponade. We ended up doing a subzygoid window. This is not. You do not want to be getting in the chest on this kit. Anybody want to give me the final diagnosis? TB. That's In these environments, TB, malaria, parasites. Got to be in the tops of your diagnoses. Okay, next question. This guy, and this might look like a blast. This is actually a 50 caliber gunshot wound to the shoulder. Uh, you see essentially a four-quarter amputation, massive bleeding from subclavian artery and vein. Uh, so what would you tell our pre-hospital people, or what can they do to control this type of hemorrhage? Matt?
0: You know, the, really the best thing you can do because you have a junctional hemorrhage in this case is pack that thing with hemostatic dressing, wrap it as tight as you can. Well, there's is. no
2: way to pack it. I mean, you can see there's no cavity to pack.
0: Yeah. You know, for them, there's not much they can do in the field uh, other than lay on a hemostatic and then place a right-sided chest tube and hold pressure and get them to a hospital. Carlos? Yeah, I think
5: direct pressure with a hemostatic if someone is— What hemostatic? Uh, I, I use uh, combat gauze. Um, and then if someone sees a, a vessel it's obviously beating and they have a hemostat, put a hemostat on it. But
2: You're Mr. Direct Wound Management.
5: You didn't yeah, say direct, direct
2: wound management? I said direct pressure with a hemostat. <laughs> direct pressure with a topical hemostat. Uh, oh, okay. Deb? Yeah, I totally agree. Jim? Yep. No other tricks? Okay. So uh, this guy actually had been taken care of by a marine unit up front. You see all those speckles on that wound. That's the quick clot, old quick clot powder we used to use. Generates an exothermic reaction. But that were great for this type of wound where you really can't pack. And, and Quick Clot brought to us, thanks to the research by Peter Ree and Hassan Alam, WTA members. All right. This girl shows up in your clinic in Tikrit, and she has she has several craniofacial abnormalities. Marty will certainly recognize this person. Uh, yeah, well, that's when she showed up with you guys who resected a craniofacial tumor. She has this massive lymphangiomatous invasion of the tongue, it's been getting worse. She's now shown up, though, in moderate respiratory distress with strider. Matt, uh-huh. again, you're at a
0: you're at a FST. Yeah. Um, What's her neck look like? Yeah. All I see the is the 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 there's there's a small <laughs> there's, looks like a place to put an incision. There's a small neck behind that giant chin. <laughs>
9: yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So I think you're more than likely heading the round of surgical airway, but I know you did this, and I know you called a pediatric surgeon for expert help, and that's what I would do too. Okay, but what would you do? I mean, she's got Strider. Yeah. They start with your, your typical things you would do for, you know, children, racemic, epi, all those things, and be prepared to do your surgical airway.
2: So would you take her to the OR, put her to sleep, and do a surgical
0: airway? I You're think not I would be able start to... with those non-invasives first and see if she responds, Okay, actually. Carlos? See how well you can maintain her oxygenation, um,
5: and if there's any option, if you have fiber optic intubation, you probably don't, um, or what kind of airway expertise you have, and then be ready to do a surgical airway, either needle crike or or crike.
2: Awake, or would you put her to sleep and then do it?
5: I would do what I can to not put her to sleep while we're managing it, if at all possible.
2: Okay, Deb?
6: Yeah, I totally agree. I would try to do an awake needle crike, and then once you have established a a needle crike, then you can put her to sleep and do a formal tracheostomy.
3: Okay, I mean, I think it's a temporizing measure, but if you do a a formal cricothyroidotomy, that's the narrowest point of this child's airway. She's going to get a a subglottic stenosis. Uh,
7: I I think he's right. I I think probably...
6: Do you want to go back to
7: the no mic stand? So what I was going to say is an awake surgical airway, but I would think an awake formal trach and I think a lot about ketamine.
4: And this is the uh, patient that you bring the parents into the, you know, OR, or if it's an older person, an interpreter in the OR, and you do it with them, you know, talking them through it. And the first time you try and bring an interpreter or parents into the OR, people kind of freak out. But this is a case you have to do it because there's a huge language barrier too.
8: Yeah.
2: Oh, you could definitely hold on to that time from across the room. <laughs> So so that's exactly what we did. We did an awake trach. Uh, we actually had a very good CRNA. Uh, but then we were also stuck with this issue with the tongue, and we really at this point had no transfer options at this point of the war. So that we were actually talked into by our pediatric surgeon. We called into doing a subtotal glossectomy, and this is the exact team you want doing that, an orthopedic surgeon, general surgeon, and OB-GYN. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but actually she ended up doing very well, and this is actually her post-op and with her trach removed. Okay, wow. so we're going to switch our panel members. So very quickly, each of you is going to call your replacement from the audience, and we ask you to come right up so we can switch over. Uh, and if we could switch to the second set of slides. Matt?
6: You have no, to do this No quick. drama. Don't no, prolong yeah. this. Oscar. Come on up, Oscar. All right. Mitch. Oh, uh, Stephanie Savage. Sorry, out there.
7: Well... <clears throat> I thought about somebody else, but I decided to go younger, Joe Gallant.
4: Let's give our panel members a round of applause. Good job. Okay, a couple uh, military people, a couple civilians. Fantastic. Okay, the unlucky four. We'll go ahead and get on to the uh, next case. So this is a somewhat recent case, August 2016. This patient will be taken care of at a role two Ford surgical team and combat support hospital. Again, a dismounted IED. This patient had penetrating injuries face, neck, thorax, upper and lower extremities. There was a concern for TBI, immediately at a decrease uh, in mental status. Uh, it, was, it was transferred by Medivac. There were s- troops still in contact, which is relevant because uh, you have to plan for additional patients. One of the patients was KIA, but the team wasn't really aware if he was dead when he got there, and there were five additional casualties. A 29-year-old male already mentioned that dismounted IED. Uh, His heart rate was 133, blood pressure 60 over palp, stats were 100%. He was on a non-rebreather. His GCS was not documented pre-hospital, just that he wasn't responding very well. Um, So want to talk about anything. If you get called, what you would say to your medics, any pre-hospital interventions?
2: So we'll start uh, with Oscar. So you've got this this guy again, blast injury, multiple fragments, systolic of sixty in the field. Well, what would you tell your pre hospital providers to do if you could advise them?
1: Um, well, I mean, if you got you got to worry about hemorrhage first, and this guy, all extremities are injured. Probably, if there's active hemorrhage, I'd put tourniquets in place, big IVs, and start blood if you've got it. Okay, well, we have no blood in the field,
2: but they've got, they've got crystalloid and hextend as the TC3 fluid. Actually, no, no major extremity stuff that's actively bleeding. It's mostly torso and definitely
1: face and neck. Um, maybe even decompress the, the chest with a, a dart. Good. Okay, Mitch? How about should they
2: resuscitate this kid? Give him fluid? Not give him fluid?
9: Well, yeah, that is uh, That is the question, right? I mean, I think uh, yes, you've is. got to watch that pressure, right? If he seems like he's perfusing, uh, you know, the question, I guess, the best you can do is to figure out how and if he's ment- mentating, right? And you have to um, resuscitate to that level. Um, if he's really not mentating and you really need to resuscitate him, then you also need to think about how well he's protecting his airway, especially with face uh, and uh, upper injuries.
2: Okay, so so he's he's breathing. <coughs> Uh, and doesn't seem labored. He's he's awake, mentating. You, you've got a weak palpable radio pulse. Would you tell him to give him fluid or hold fluid? With, uh, with the blood pressure 60, I'd give him a little bit of fluid. It, it
9: it really depends on what's our transport time to get to more definitive care or more better resources.
2: Okay. Stephanie, what do you think?
8: Probably have him place an IO or some kind of access. Give him some hextend. Speak in the mic. Give him the hextend, IO. Um, if he's mentating, I wouldn't ask him to put an airway in. When I was there, those guys were pretty aggressive about uh, cracking everyone. So, yeah. You know, depends okay. on his mentation.
2: Joe?
11: Yeah, I think uh, decompress the chest if there's nothing to uh, actively control that's bleeding. Both um, chests?
2: One chest? Uh,
11: do both to be yeah. on the safe side. Good. The question that comes up is we need some more information about troops in contact, so... Are we able to get a helicopter in to get him out right away, or do we have an estimate of how long he's going to be there and what troops are in contact? Is it U.S.-ISAF forces only, or is it a mixed group? Are there Afghan or uh, coalition partners that are injured as well? Because
2: that will um, help dictate for some of the triage. Okay, so, yeah, medevac is on their way to pick him up. Um, How many in the audience would give him some fluid? There's no blood. Your choice is Hextend or nothing. He's got a weak palpable radial pulse. And GCS he's kind is, of maintaining. His yeah.
4: CCS is about eight.
2: Marty. Yeah. You give him hex ten. Yeah, mental status and normal pulse. Okay. Yeah, I mean. Okay. He- so how many here would give him? How many? Weak palpable pulse. What?
15: The goal is a good
14: pulse and mental status. Yes. That's the goal of the result. He has a weak
11: But your hextend in your field is also a limited resource. So you only have so many medics out there. So you need to know who else is getting the, who else is injured
2: to get the hex den.
4: So he did not get fluid.
2: Okay. So how many How many would not give him any fluid? How many would give him a bolus of the hex den?
1: Okay. You're, you're talking about a guy that might have a head injury and you're going to let him sit at 60. Good for you. So you'd give him fluid? Yeah. I'd get his pressure up high enough to. He's not doing calculus, I promise you that. He's, he, yeah, but neither are we.
2: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's the next question for TC3. That's the that's the currently. If we can get
4: fluid. blood to everybody, the then no, hexan will be yeah, taken out It's
2: horrible. I would never use it. But.
9: So, no, it's a horrible fluid, but if that's all you've got, I mean, if he's not mentating, then he needs, all right, he Marty? needs some additional pressure. If you he are wrong. Then
14: so Gann et al., published, shows if you give, Hexten is designed to not cause coagulopathy, and large volumes of Hexten have been given with TEG data showing that Hexten does not cause coagulopathy. There's two reasons for that. One is the molecular size of the starch. It's a lower molecular starch, which doesn't cause coagulopathy. And the second one is that it's in a balanced salt solution. It's not in normal saline. The solution is more like LR. And the combination of a balanced salt solution and smaller molecular weight It does not cause coagulopathy. Proven in anesthesia, analgesia, GAN at all, no coagulopathy, multiple bolus of Hexten, TEG data, no coagulopathy.
9: But in large large volumes, Marty, it causes a a dilutional and fibrinogen bioavailability coagulopathy. So it really depends on how much you...
4: Well, All no, right. th- we have a couple more complicated questions with yeah. those okay, patients.
2: Let's, <laughs> let's, let's move on.
4: Okay, so um, the pre-hospital interventions, they did needle D his right chest uh, based on his exam, uh, and they got an IO, he got TXA. You can see his vitals there. So um, I think the battery's running out in the... Uh, we got paper. no fluid and, and maintained that blood pressure. He, he did not get any fluid in uh, pre-hospital. So... He arrives at what we is a Ford surgical team, but it was augmented by a couple extra people because of the tactical and operational scenario. So the people there are 14 personnel total: uh, two general surgeons, two CRNAs, orthopedic surgeon, a couple nurses. No X-ray capability at all. Uh, Ten units of PRBCs, and you can do a walking blood bank. We already said there was one KIA that they didn't really confirm was KIA. Showed up. Needed uh, the thought was he might need some resuscitation and five additional casualties. Um, I think we might need a clicker change. Okay, here is the uh, here is the actual place that the patient arrived to. This is the ATLS area. You can get an idea of the resource limitations, especially with multiple casualties. And this is the actual operating room of the place that the, these patients went to. Okay, so knowing that, uh, so he arrives, heart rate's 116, blood pressure 121 over 70, He follows commands, but there's clear blood in his oral pharynx. He has mild respiratory distress. On his secondary survey, he's peppering to his face and chest. He's got multiple facial lacerations. The right needle D did fall out. Um, And then he does have a right lower extremity tourniquet in place. We're not going to focus on that injury because he had palpable pulses. So we're going to really focus uh, on what's going on with this patient's uh, neck injury. So what's uh, the next step with this?
2: Okay, Oscar, what are you going to do with this guy? And those are his injuries? Got a big gouge in his face, big gouge in the neck, and he arrived, mild respiratory distress.
1: Yeah, I mean, you clearly got to maintain his airway, and that's going to be the first uh, thing to go. I can't really tell on that. So, how are you going to do that? Well, I can't tell from that bottom photo. Is that? I mean, is he lacerated like right through zone two into the central zone? I mean, right through the middle of zone two. It's the resident's dream. So, if if I can see his airway there. I'd intubate it. In the ATLS area? In the ED? Yeah, wherever. I mean, I'm, I'm going to get an airway, but if you can see his, his trachea, I'd put it through a hole right in the, into his tra- the ET tube into his trachea. If I can't, I mean, you've got to, you're going to be prepared for emergent
2: airway. So you would RSI him and intubate him in the ED? That's the
1: question. Yeah, I th- he needs an airway. Okay, Mitch?
2: Yeah, no, I'd, uh, I'd take him to the operating
9: room. Uh, I think you need to do it there. I think you need to evaluate his chest injuries, which you could probably do by ultrasound, right? Make sure he's not dying from a hemopneumothorax, which you which you could evaluate in the emergency, or whatever in the ATLS area. Uh, but you need to be in the airway and then assess whether you can protect this airway from above or be ready to do a cric trach, depending on what those injuries. It's kind of hard to tell what his neck looks like from these pictures. Exactly. Okay, Stephanie.
8: I'd take him to the OR. I'd give the CRNA or someone a shot to orally intubate. Um, if that fails, I'd crack him, and then I'd probably do bilateral chest tubes with the assumption that he's going to have to get transported.
11: Joe, anything different? No, uh, I would keep going with resuscitation and see if anything ended up bleeding out of that neck. The ultimate goal for him is we need to move him forward um, to a roll three as soon as we can since we have more casualties, and he's going to need all that explored and imaged. And um, I also want to... Keep an eye on that leg that as he gets resuscitated, we don't develop more hemorrhage from that. Um, He has a tourniquet that's not adequately in place, so he could start bleeding from that lower extremity, and people could focus solely on the head injuries and neck injuries and miss that.
2: Okay, that's actually a great point. I mean, we always prep these people from head to toe and often working in multiple teams because those will restart bleeding. Okay.
4: Okay. So what they did is they were able to uh, intubate. They put a right chest tube in, a successful oral tracheal intub- intubation. He went to the operating room. There was a moderate amount of bleeding, but it was all from above the angle of the mandible. It was not massive hemorrhage once he was resuscitated. So now you know where you are. What's the next step.
2: Okay. So again, they're, they're at an FST level. They're exploring this neck and they're describing this hemorrhage coming from above the angle of the mandible.
1: That's a Oscar. really, really, really tough place to be.
6: <laughs> they thought in, so in too. In the tent or the angle of the
1: mandible? <laughs> Both. <laughs> I'm, I'm a simple rural surgeon, so I don't know about this you know, ATLS thing. But I, I can tell you that um, <laughs> anything above the angle of the mandible, you're, you're – no matter how – okay, first of all, it needs to be in an operating room, not in some um, tent somewhere. So – Packing and packing and packing and getting to a place, I don't know, I don't know how the military works, but if, if, if you're going to do it, it's got to be in a place where you can uh, get to that spot, whether it's by angiography or um, if you're going to do it, I'm going to tell you something that probably nobody in this room knows. The, only, the best way to get at that point, if you're going to do it surgically, is crank the middle of the mandible and open them up from the middle out, not going at it from the jawline. Because when you try and take it out from the, the condyle, they'll, they'll bleed to death before you ever get to it. Um, but that comes from 30 years of listening to my father, the head and neck surgeon. So I can't, you know. Okay. And I've been up there. They're probably the not going to do
4: that at the roll too. <laughs>
1: no, that's my point. It needs it needs to be packed and then get on with it.
4: Put, they, they do sometimes. Yeah, full, they do. Whatever you got, pack it. That's what you got to
2: do. Yeah. So that's the question. So it's going to be a 30 minute helicopter ride to the next level. Would you be comfortable packing that and leaving it, or would you do a formal neck exploration and try and find what's bleeding, Mitch? Well, I think the the question is significant, but mic. not oh, sorry. The question
9: is significant, but not massive, right? I mean, I think you need to take one shot at this to control it in any possible way you can. Pack a Foley balloon, a Fogarty, if you've got it. And if you can get it down to a dull roar enough that you feel like you can resuscitate and get the uh, you know injured warfighter to the next level, then that's what you got to do. If it is if significant is close to massive, then no, they can't fly, and then you're going to have to um, take the mandible down, and you're going to have to try to approach this injury to get better control of it because you're going to be Stephanie? forced. Stephanie.
8: I think I probably if it wouldn't if it wasn't actively bleeding to begin with I probably wouldn't have had them explore the neck to begin with no, no, but it,
2: it was actively bleeding and and they, But if that's what you get. it as moderate.
8: Then I'd probably try to pack it and send it because you've got five more coming. Um there's and usually Actually, ENT we'll say the five, five more
2: the five more didn't pan out. We'll just say this is the only patient.
8: I'd still pack it and send it.
2: Okay. And you'd be okay, you know, with the risk of during that 30-minute flight, it would cut loose. Do they have
1: blood to give on the way, on route?
6: They, uh, they, have a
4: 10, they have 10 units of PRBCs, and they can always do a uh, walking blood bank. And Jill? it's not uncommon to send the blood with a medevac team. Yeah.
11: Joe? I, I would uh, explore that. I don't trust him going by helicopter 30 minutes somewhere else with packing alone without having to look. I think I would look under there. Um, you can get decent exposure if you use two Army navies and really crank on that mandible and look down there. You probably have a headlight or something. that will be able to – even a flashlight to look up there, see if you can control something. If you can get a Fogarty up there, that would be great if you can ligate. If that's taking too long, um, then you'll have to go with the pack with combat gauze and hope that that holds.
2: Okay. So who in the audience would pack and ship? And who would go after this and try and formally explore it? A couple brave souls. All right,
4: With gray hair. Uh, They have
9: gray hair. Dr. Schreiber didn't vote.
13: (laughs) Yes. Dr. Carmi Jones. Again, with having no experience in this whatsoever, uh, trying to imagine this is like the oral boards, right? Trying to examine. So, if you're posting that you have a patient that you really have a clinical suspicion that I want to pack, but I'm really worried that somewhere in between you're going to have massive uncontrolled hemorrhage, what about, and this is totally off the books. Proximal control as proximal as you can of the carotid artery, umbilical tape, ramel, and just say if in transport it blows, crank it down.
2: Yeah, remember the generally there's a medic with these people on the flight, and, and I don't think I'd be comfortable leaving that up to a standard basic medic.
4: It has been done before especially with extremities but um, but yeah I think that everybody's a little bit concerned about the flight and also on these flights it's so loud and sometimes they're tactically flying so it can make it a little bit challenging.
2: Dr. Shackford?
4: Well,
3: yeah you know, I don't know what this guy's neck looks like but 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 I think you can get up fairly high take down the digastric make sure it's not the hypoglossal nerve take down the digastric pull it apart and if you can see up there you can really get up there a little bit higher and if you think you got if if you can actually see the lesion you can put a little Fogarty up there and pull it down. I'd be worried about the Rommel, though, because back bleeding in these people. You know, some, karate, some pressure is pretty good in young people. So you've got to be a little careful about that. Okay, next. Okay,
4: So um, they packed the wound. Uh, they I indeed all the face and extremity wounds. He did get some blood, and he went to the combat support hospital. His flight was uneventful. Now he gets to the Roll 3 combat support hospital. There's ancillary surgical support. Uh, including interventional radiology, huge blood bank. It's essentially like a hospital in the States. On arrival, his blood pressure is 121 over 70, heart rate 127. He's sedated. You have a few choices. You could send him nine hours to Germany straight away, but uh, you have some choices there.
1: All right. Well, what do you want to do with him, Oscar? Okay. So you say there is interventional radiology. I, I still don't know what the rest of his um, chest and abdomen are. Um. Would you take him to the OR? Would you image him? He's stable. Uh-huh. I would I would image.
2: Okay. And he has no intracranial unexploded ordnance. Not yet. <laughs> I mean,
1: <laughs> I, mean I, I, I still need to know what his chest and abdomen are doing. So you would take uh, him and image him? And what would you image for the neck? What would you do? I'd do the a CT. CTA? Yeah. how C- Mitch, t- what would you do?
9: Yeah, I, I, I'd do that. And, uh, and then, you know, I'd probably want a real angio. I mean, if you say we have real interventional radiology capability, it kind of depends on how high this lesion is. I mean, yeah, you've got to look for other injuries. But assuming we're focusing on the neck for sake of this discussion... Um, if we can angio them and we have any way to get something across or even get proximal control while we go explore this really high, if it's if it's reachable, um, then I'd want that. So
2: you'd CT them first and CT angio? CT
9: angio first and then plus minus additional.
2: Okay. Yeah. Anybody do anything different? Yeah. Yes. 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 If
11: I can get an angio, I'd get an angio. The issue with the CT is there's probably a lot of frags left there in the neck, and that's going to cause a lot of scatter, which is going to make the CT... Uh, Difficult to actually differentiate what's happening,
2: and actually the le- the leg looks okay and it's got palpable pulses. Okay, so everybody would image. All right,
4: so uh, he does get imaged. He gets imaged from head to toe, including the leg. The leg doesn't have any evidence of uh, arterial injury. Just to put that out of the table, he gets a CT. Uh, C- this is a CTA of his neck. Just pause for a second there, and then uh, he gets a CT. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Sorry. I'm having technical difficulties with the clicker. He also gets a CT of his head. Um, So I already mentioned chest, abdomen, pelvis, and extremities. There's nothing significant for this discussion. So at this point, you have this patient uh, with these injuries, and you have a CTA of his neck and a CT of his head. This is him in the operating room. You have full OR capabilities. At this place, at this time, fortuitously, there was a neurosurgeon who also had endovascular training. Which
2: this Which will be does not always probably happen. the only case where you'll <laughs> ever have that in this environment. But okay, so o- so Oscar, what would you do with this guy next? So he's got that at least a pseudo aneurysm of the internal carotid.
1: God, well,
2: and a stroke. Question is, or
1: try interventional something? I mean, he's already stroked. I mean, I, it's a terrible situation. I mean i have talk to the neurosurgeon if he's there, and I don't, I don't even, I don't know if you'd stent it. I, I, I don't know what I would do with that. Well, the neurosurgeon says I can throw a stent across that. Sure, you want can. To
2: or do you want to explore it and fix
1: it? I'd go
2: endovascular, Mitch. Yeah, I think I'd probably uh, uh, ask them to try to put a stent across that. It's... Okay. Anybody do anything differently, Joe? Joe reluctantly. Hey,
4: reluctant, reluctant stent. Re- reluctantly. <laughs> okay.
2: He's going he's to go Reluctantly down. crouched. Again, he's going to go on a plane <laughs> for nine stunning. hours after the stent letting gets placed. Okay, so so who here would try and do a stent? And who here would go to the OR and explore this?
4: Okay. Same people would go to the OR. And, and, and it looks food.
2: relatively low, but we, w- we will say when you see the CAT scans, this, this, this person has a very high bifurcation, and this truly is right, right at the angle of the mandible. Okay, next, Jen.
4: Okay, so uh, they did a right neck exploration because he still had packing in there. So uh, he did have some more bleeding, which was controlled. He had a right carotid stent placement. And because of where the stent was to prevent an uh, endoleak, they ligated his external carotid. In terms of his other wounds, everything else was i and uh, He was in the OR for not too long. Uh, he had no evidence, like I already mentioned, of vascular injury on his extremities. So the patient then makes it to the ICU after this uh, after the right carotid stent.
2: Okay, so anticoagulation blood pressure management. I'll start with Oscar.
1: Uh, maintain I'd maintain adequate blood pressure, uh, mapped goals of 75, well, 65, I don't know, whatever. Pick your number. And then um, – <laughs> The nurse will appreciate that order. Keep it no, to I whatever. Mean, whatever. I mean, there's there's numbers all over the board. They're all, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. But, I mean, the bottom line is you want to maintain an adequate perfusion pressure um, to the brain. Um, anticoagulation is going to be dependent on that stent and what, what's going to happen with the with the, the stroke. I so mean, would
2: you anticoagulate the guy with anything at this point?
9: Probably not. Mitch? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think you can anticoagulate. I think you'll have enough flow through that stent to not have that be a problem. But he's already got a stroke. He's got other injuries. I don't think you okay. can.
2: Stephanie,
8: I just maintain the blood pressure. Joe, Joe's blood pressure.
2: So that's an embolic stroke. So you would not. No. You're saying. How about. How about aspirin? Okay. How many here would do aspirin? Okay. How many here would anticoagulate with heparin? Okay. All right.
4: So they put him on a – he was actually hypertensive after this, so they had to lower his blood pressure on a cardine drip. He was placed on heparin. In his neuro exam, he was a 9T. He was able to localize plane, but he continued to have a left hemiparesis. So I think something that we have to deal with in our population is, what do you do next for this patient knowing that he's still in the combat theater?
2: Yeah, so so the question is put him on a plane to launch which is, you know, a nine to ten hour flight. He has this stroke. How long would you wait to transport him and be comfortable in terms of the evolution of this stroke? You know, is he going to develop severe cerebral edema, et cetera, Oscar?
1: So I mean he's going to do that no matter where he is, right? So um getting him to a place where they can manage that better would be. But if be... he does it on the plane, that's a
2: bad thing where there's no neurosurgeon or any other yeah. So yeah. Well, so he's the question is, how long then? would you watch him until you would say, "Okay, he's he's okay to fly."
1: <laughs> I defer. <laughs> Are
6: they allowed to do that? Okay.
1: Sure. Put him on three percent and let's rock. All right, Oscar defers.
9: This is where we we call the OBGYN in. uh, um, uh, No, I mean, this uh, goes without saying, but needs to be said that these are really tough cases. And for us civilians that have not had to deal with this, you guys have our ultimate admiration for being able to do all this stuff at all of these levels. Um, I I think I'd keep this guy 48 hours, uh, and uh, and then if nothing was changing, then I'd fly him.
1: So what, what difference does it make? What's, what's the time frame going to do?
9: You know, uh, it's, this is a hand-wavy thing, but it's, I think that the, the watching this to see whether this embolic thing is going to convert to a hemorrhagic stroke, whether it's going to get larger and whether you're going to need to decompress it so it doesn't happen on the plane. I think 48 hours makes me happy. Could it happen while they're flying after? Maybe. Um, but being able to watch it and know that I've got neurosurgical capability that's not in the air, I'd be a lot more comfortable at 48 hours, and that is a made-up
1: number is there is there a way to do icp monitoring um there is so would you ask them to put an icp monitor in and ship them well that's that's what i think I, if as long as i could figure out what the the brain you know what the compartments do and i would okay stephanie put them... yeah
2: i think that's a reasonable approach marty
14: so i really have to emphasize that when you're on these planes you can't you, you're very limited in what you can do for these patients and there is no urgency. This guy's in a, in, a, in a good setting. He's a he, nice intensive care unit. I assume he's at Bagram because you're talking about sending him to Germany. This is a high-level, good-functioning intensive care unit. You've got your eyes on the patient. You're able to do things. You put that patient on a plane, you lose complete control of that patient. You have to remember, it's very loud. There's tremendous vibration. You have minimal abilities. The guy, it's, basically, it's basically like taking a patient to the CT scanner. You put all the stuff on a stretcher, (laughs) and and you do not want to lose control of this patient. You want to watch him until the cerebral edema uh, is no longer increasing. Make sure he's safe, and then put him in shipment. So how long would that be, Marty? Yeah. Actually, I would wait 72 hours.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know what the facilities are like. I'm sorry. That's just an ignorance issue. But if you've got full ICU capability in that institution, then let him stay. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I think think that's a key
2: point. Uh, Sometimes we're just in a hurry to push, push, push. And you have to be able to identify the patient where you can say, you know, we can keep him here a couple of days because Launstrel can't do anything that we can't do here.
3: Just, just a couple of points, I think. Uh, f- first of all, is he examinable? I mean, you know he's got a left-handed. GCS is yes, nine. He is GCS is yeah. nine. So you can watch that, at, 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 at number one. You can watch that rather than have to put the bolt in. I think Randy Chestnut's kind of put that to rest, at least if you can examine the patient, number one. Number two, I would be very, very worried about anticoagulation. A guy's had an ischemic stroke and who's hypertensive because they've just messed with his baroreceptors when they ligated that external carotid. Second thing about ligation of the external carotid, I don't know how bad his neck injury is, but your cross face collaterals are not great to heal that big wound now of the foreface, so I'd be really cautious about that. And that was one of the reasons why I probably would have gone after that open so I wouldn't have to ligate the external carotid.
2: Okay. So why don't we're almost out of time. Why don't we finish out this case?
4: So um, post-op day two, post-injury day four, he was examinable, like Dr. Shackford said. Um, He did have a significantly worse hemiparesis. Aspirin was started. So do you want to just go through this or you want to give him a... Yeah, just go ahead. Okay. So uh, so they started aspirin, and um, as you would imagine, he had a change in his neuro exam. So they got additional imaging. You can see that he's had evolution of his ischemic stroke with some midline shift and um, he had a leak with his stent. And going through the notes and talking with the team that were there, they had a little bit of a leak when it was placed, but they thought that it would—they um, thought it would thrombose. So he, uh, uh, so now people who raised their hand who said they would have taken him to the OR in the first place are, are uh, high fiving. So then they took him back to the operating room. Uh, they repeated the arteriogram. It demonstrated that he had a pseudoaneurysm that was not present on his initial completion arteriogram. I went to the OR, and you can see the – just watch the bottom image. They put in a stent. It resolved – they put in a second stent that went higher um, and uh, covered the pseudoaneurysm. Next, the – patient uh, was transferred to launch stool. They kept him at Bagram uh, for, in theater for seven days just to follow his neuro exam and given the capability that they did have there. He went to Walter Reed post-injury day nine. He recovered remarkably well. In his notes, it said his progress was striking. He was not even allowed to go to rehab because he didn't need it. He was kicked out of rehab. And to prove he didn't need to go, he took the DC Metro independently as proof of capability. Uh, <laughs> so he didn't. And, uh, and he's, the patient is currently still on active duty.
12: Can I, um, hold on. Can I have one, uh, one last comment yeah, Rick. as the program chair? Uh, uh I think about, uh, five or six months ago, uh, Matt and Jen, uh, called me and we had a battering of emails back and forth and said that they had a great idea for a panel of experts that would focus on, um, uh, military management of these complex cases. And I must say that, um, this is totally amazing. I think it's something that we should add to every one of our WTA uh, meetings. And, and we as civilians uh, now get an incredible appreciation of the things that you do in the field, the patients that you save, uh, the heroics that you do. And uh, as, uh, um, as a program chair and a member of the WTA, uh, we thank you very much for your incredible service.
4: Thanks, Dr. Miller. Appreciate it. Thanks.
2: I'm going to skip go through. Just go through those.
4: So, um, I, I just, uh, you know, thanks to the WTA and thanks to Matt. And then, uh, does anybody have any last? Sorry, we'll see Matt struggle through the <laughs> <astronomy>. <laughs> Not struggle, it was very graceful. Uh, any last questions or comments? You can't go just yet because there's a uh, announcement about the ski challenge. And then um, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to the panel members. Thank you guys, especially the second group, and then all the people at the Joint Trauma System. And uh, appreciate the opportunity to present today.
2: And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.